This morning we will be looking at Zechariah chapter 5. If you would please now give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Zechariah chapter 5. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is twenty cubits, and its width ten cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleansed according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief. And the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before You this morning, and we ask, O Lord, that You would reach us by Your word. By the power of your word and your spirit, O Lord, we ask that you would grip our hearts. That you would give us a great love for the Savior. That you would show us our need for you. And that you would bless us with the promises of the gospel. This we ask in the name above all names. The name of our great God and Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If there is one thing that marks the modern world, it is a sense that we have forgotten about sin. You see, very little talk of sin in society today. As a matter of fact, great lengths are gone to to redefine sin. It's no longer sin, it's now dysfunction or disease, 
or unfortunate circumstances. But you see, the scriptures point us to the truth that our main problem, each and every one of us in the world today, is not dysfunction, is not a disease, but it is sin. It is the sin that is all around us, and oftentimes the sin that is in us and that we commit. And so this morning, the prophet Zechariah receives two more visions that help us to understand God's view and perspective of sin. This morning in Zechariah 5, I'd like us to see three things about sin. First, we see sin revealed. God reveals the nature of sin to us. Third, we see sin restrained. How our Heavenly Father restrains sin in our midst. And then third, we see sin removed. How sin is taken away by God Himself. Sin is revealed, it is restrained, and it is removed. Let's begin then by looking at sin that is revealed in the first four verses. The first vision of chapter 5 that Zechariah sees is a revealing of sin for what it is. Now, these are visions number 6 and 7. And as we have been going through the book of Zechariah, perhaps you are like me as we come to each one of these visions. They seem to get more convoluted more difficult to understand. There are all sorts of things that are before us. And here we have two visions, six and seven, that seem very much to go together. There is a kind of a word marker that describes this for us. If you look at chapter 5, the very first word is again. And then if you look down to verse, to, excuse me, to chapter 6, where other visions occur, again, the very first word is again. It's as if Zechariah is cordoning these off. He wants us to understand vision 6 and 7 go together. Now, in the previous visions, there has been a ministry of encouragement from God to the people of Israel. There have been visions about God's protection for them. There were visions about how they were accepted by God. And last week we looked at a vision that described for us how we are to press on in the might and the power of the Lord. But now we have some bad news. You see, Zechariah looks up and he sees a scroll. And you have to understand what that means in the context of the culture of the Old Testament. You see, seeing a scroll would have had an immediate effect on Zechariah. Because scrolls are a sign of coming judgment. Now, you know what this is like. You can tell when things are going badly just by signs, symbols. Perhaps you young people understand this well. You walk into a room and you see mom and she's got a look on her face. And you immediately know somebody is in trouble. You hope it's not you, but somebody is in trouble. That's what the look means. It's a red flag. That's what a scroll means in the Old Testament. 
Ezekiel, for example, in Ezekiel 2, is shown a scroll. And on the scroll are written words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Jeremiah is told to prepare a scroll with which he would judge the wicked king Jehoiakim. So Zechariah looks out and he sees this scroll. And you can imagine, from a human perspective, his reaction. God, can't you give us a break here? I mean, have you seen what we've been going through? Israel has been all through all sorts of punishment. They have been driven out of the promised land. The city around them is destroyed. They have been punished for their sin. You could just imagine, humanly speaking, the prophet wondering, why can't God just continue to be nice for a while? You know, times are hard. We don't need to see some judgment coming down on us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have that approach at times to God. We don't want any bad news. We don't want to be called on the carpet. We don't want to read in the scriptures and have to change who we are. We just want God to be nice. And that will help us and bless us. But the truth of the matter is, is that God cares more about us than about being nice. He cares more about our souls than about being silent where things need to be spoken. In this way, God is a bit like the way parents act toward their children. You know, children always wonder, why do mom and dad have to have this kind of secret pact to ruin all my fun? It's as if they plan ahead of time to suck all the fun out of everything in life. Even dinner. Like, what's with the vegetables? Why can't we just have cake? Why do they have to do this all the time? And then what happens is, some of you know this experience, some of you will experience this. You get older, you see more of the world, you begin to have your own children, and you realize that it was not a secret, fun, banishing pact. Behind there was the love of your parents trying to keep you from harm and danger. You don't get cake for dinner every day because your teeth would fall out. You're told to stop jumping on the couch because you will fall and crack your head. You see, it's love that intervenes. And and this is why God intervenes in our lives and here in Zechariah 5. He cares for us deeply and He will not leave us rushing headlong to go off of a cliff. And so He reveals this scroll. And one thing about it is that it is huge, gigantic, enormous. If you don't know how big a cubit is, I'll translate for you. This scroll is 30 feet long and 20 feet wide. There has never been a scroll this big. Even the longest of scrolls that you unwind are not 30 feet And even those scrolls are only but a foot or two foot across. I couldn't even hold a 20 foot wide scroll. In a sense, this really isn't a scroll. It's more like a billboard that's up in the sky. And it's 
Because of that, easy to see. There's a reason why when you drive by the highway, they have the gigantic billboards with the big letters so that you can read them as you go by at 65 miles an hour. That's what's happening here. God has put something into the sky that is easy to see. It is not only huge, it is flying. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't see too many flying billboards, or scrolls for that matter. But you might think in your mind's eye of when you're outside and someone decides to have a plane with a banner trailing behind it. It immediately grabs your attention, doesn't it? And what's the first thing you do after you see it? You say to the person next to you, look at that. All eyes are upon it. That's why people rent those planes and have the banners. So this is a large scroll that is flying in the sky. And the overwhelming point of this is God wants us to see what he is saying. His commandments are written on both sides of the scroll. On the first we see in verse 3, it speaks about those who steal. And then we see it speaks about those who swear falsely. We see that it speaks about the eighth commandment, stealing from someone else. And the third commandment, swearing falsely by the Lord's name, we are told later. And so it's as if, in summary form, all of the Ten Commandments are on both sides of this scroll. Because after all, we can look at the Ten Commandments as the first section dealing with our relationship with God, and then the second section dealing with our relationship with one another. And so here on this scroll are examples of either. But there's something interesting about these sins. They're also very interpersonal. When you steal something, you take it from another person. When you swear falsely, another person is hurt because you have lied to them. So these are interpersonal sins that are now abounding in Jerusalem and the area. You could just imagine that these are business kinds of sins. You could imagine the Israelites committing these sins and then excusing them by saying, well, you know, it's just business. It's just what we need to do to survive. If somebody gets in hurt in the way, well, I'm looking out for number one. You see, it's easy to suppress our knowledge and understanding of sin based on what we think is important. And what we think is crucial. And so this sin is revealed front and center in front of everyone. And it is also revealed for how it is judged. For you see here at verse 3, the angel describes this as the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. And so what this large scroll is saying is that sin cannot be ignored. The curse is actually a technical term for a judgment, for a violation of the covenant. And so what is being said here is that while sins are occurring against people, all sin is actually against God. We cannot escape that. Each and every sin affects our relationship with God. And God will bring all of these sins into judgment. 
Do you see what this scroll is designed to do? It goes and it enters into the home of the thief and enters into the home of the one who swears falsely. You see, it shows us exactly how hard it is to get away from sin. The Israelites had thought they had conquered sin and didn't have to worry about it anymore. They were very aware of the sin of idolatry. They were very aware that they had gotten kicked out of the promised land for for worshipping false idols. And so now they do what anyone does in this circumstance. When you touch a hot stove, what do you do afterwards? You stay away from it. You don't touch it again. You know it hurts. I don't know that there's anyone that would touch a hot stove and get burned and go, wow, I wonder if that'll burn a second time. Ah, Yeah. No, you stay away. And so they had stayed away from the obvious sins of idolatry. And they thought they had resolved the sin issue in their lives. But all they had done was opened up another avenue of sin in their lives. Sin against each other. Sins of business. Sins of social interaction. And they have to understand here that the Lord does not just want you to kill specific sins in your life. The Lord wants holiness in His people. He's not happy if you steal but just don't lie. He's not happy if you commit adultery but just keep the Lord's day. No, He wants holiness in His people. And so you see here these scrolls enter into each and every house. No matter how hard they think they can hide away, their sin will find them out. And it's interesting that the judgment seems to fit the crime. They had sinned to build up their wealth and their property. And the judgment that comes on them is that their homes will be consumed. That's often what happens with our sin. We think that we will save our marriage by being deceptive. What ends up happening is the marriage blows up. We think that we will honor the Lord by playing games. And what happens is we get further and further from God. You see, sin gets in the way of obedience to God. And the judgment that comes upon sin, here we see, is inescapable. It goes into each and every house. Now for most of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we think we can hide our sin. Because most of our sin is undetected, isn't it? The thoughts that we think and the attitudes of our heart. It's not as if we think evil and wicked thoughts and a colored light bulb goes on over our heads. It's not as if we cherish hatred in our heart and people can see it on our faces. We can keep it to ourselves. And oftentimes our sin is not in the open. We do everything we can to keep it hidden. And in our world today, this is even worse because there is so much sin that is tolerated by our society. We can hide amongst the herd. Have you ever thought to yourself how much marriage has changed in the last 50 or 75 years? And I don't mean recent legislation in Supreme Court cases. I mean, have you thought to yourself the number of men and women you know who simply choose not to get married, ever. 
They may live together. They may even have a family together. But they just don't get married. It makes not being married easier. It makes committing certain sins of marriage easier for Christians because we're just one of a whole group of people. But you see, the judgment that comes on sin is inescapable. We cannot change the nature of truth and morality. We cannot decide what is sin by taking a poll. What this scroll before us tells us is that God is the one who speaks and says, What is sin? He is the one who will judge. And this is the great challenge for for you and me today. Because we live in a world of constantly shifting standards of sin. And we are called as followers of the Lord to stand firm. To be constant. To remember there is no way to hide our sin. And to thank the Lord that He is so good to us that He will not allow us to fool ourselves by remaining in sin. But there's a second vision that comes after the scroll. It's, quite frankly, just as odd. If you have never seen a flying scroll, I don't know that you've ever seen a woman in a basket with a lid on top. And so again, we have to wonder, what is going on here? And I think what we see in verses 5 through 8 is that the Lord speaks about sin, not just revealing it, but telling us how He restrains it in our midst. And so this second vision that Zechariah has is of a basket. It's actually, the the Hebrew word is for a bushel. So it's a basket, but it's a measuring basket, if you can imagine that. So it reminds us still of this business interpersonal connection. And it is going out and traveling widespread throughout the city. And hidden inside the basket is a woman. Because there's a lead lid on top and the lid is lifted up and a woman pops out trying to get out. And the angel then thrusts her back down and puts the heavy lead lid on top. This is like whack-a-mole with a basket. To make sure that she stays in the basket. And this is all happening because there's more for us to understand about sin. The two visions are very closely related. They're almost one vision. We already know that sin is bad. And we know that God judges sin. But now we see how God deals with sin for us. You see, sin cannot be ignored and it will not be ignored. Often we have that problem. The very last thing we want to do is to think about sin. We think it's just something that will go away if we ignore it. For most people, as long as you don't talk about it, no one may notice it, and we don't have to worry about it. Even for Christians, at times we think, if, as long as we don't bring it up, it'll just get less and less and fade away. And the reality is, that's about as smart as looking at the blinking red light, engine light on your car dash and saying, you know, if I just don't pay attention to it, I bet the car will get better all by itself. When you know what really happens, don't you? 
If you don't take care of that warning light, that engine, if you assume it's just going to go away and you don't do anything about it, the problem gets worse. Then you're not just dealing with a light, you've got a miniature explosion in your engine and your car stops going. That's what sin can do if it's ignored. And so here, Zechariah sees wickedness personified, as it were, in the basket. And see, what God is doing here is He is restraining our sin because our sin is out of control. Now, the restraint of sin does not eliminate sin, but God in His restraining power makes sin not as bad as it could be. And He is doing that today in your life. You are not as bad as you could be. The biblical doctrine of total depravity does not mean everyone is a monster. That everyone is as bad as they possibly could be. It means we are depraved in all of our senses. Our mind, our soul, our emotions. But we are not as bad as we could be. I don't expect fistfights to break out this morning. I don't expect everyone's car to be stolen. You see, there is a restraint on sin in our lives. And we have to understand that that comes from God. Because the fight against sin is constant. We always need the Lord to keep our sin under wraps. Because if He does not, it flares out. We will always find an avenue to express ourselves in a self-centered way. (coughs) And this is a great mercy. There is a mercy of restraining sin. This woman is in the basket and she is wickedness. And what you don't take from this is that all women are evil and wicked. Please don't. But it does help us to know it's a woman. Right now, in your mind's eye, you can picture a woman, can't you? Her hair, her facial features, what she might look like. And it personifies sin a bit for us. It puts a face on sin. Because the truth is, sin is not something completely outside of us. We're not just victims of sin. We are sinners. You know, it is often said... That God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Now that's true as far as it goes, in that God, by His grace, forgives sin to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, as one commentator has put it quite well, unless and until you repent, God's wrath burns not just against sin, but against you. Hell is not populated with sin. It is populated with sinners. And so there is an importance to restraining sin. There is an importance to seeking the Lord and to repenting. Because you see, God doesn't just judge sin. He keeps it under control so that we have His blessing. What wickedness wants to do here is to get out to spread idolatry, to enslave all the people around her. Wickedness wants you to pursue self-centeredness 
all the time. Sin tells you all the time, go ahead, you deserve it. It doesn't matter what happens to other people. But God will not allow this. Do you see what's going on in the picture? The woman is thrust back into the basket. It's, It's a forceful verb, an almost violent verb there in verse 8. God is stopping sin from having its full effect. And this is important for us to remember because we can forget it. Especially when we're caught in the sins of other people, we forget that God is restraining sin. Especially when we are struggling to conquer sin that seems to entangle us and beset us, we forget that God is restraining sin in us. You see, we are not as bad as we could be because God is always at work by His Word and His Spirit restraining sin. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ against sin. Do you want to be free from the consequences of sin? Do you want to be free from the effects of sin? Well, God restrains sin, but He does more than that. We see this in verse 9. We see it in the sense that sin is not just restrained, but it is removed. It is removed from God's people. Wickedness has been contained. But do you see what happens next? Two women come up and they have wings like a stork. That means they have massive wings. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture or a drawing of a stork, but especially compared to the size of their body, their wings are enormous. And they come up and each one of them takes a side of the basket and they pick the basket up and they take it away from Zechariah and away from Israel and away from Jerusalem. And that's because the Lord does not act in halfway measures. He restrains sin, but He also removes it. Because you see, the kingdom of God cannot live or abide with sin. And God will not have His people constantly, forever, struggling with sin. He will remove it. And this is God at work. It's interesting that the two women spread their wings, and there's this interesting phrase. In verse 9, the wind was in their wings. And the word in Hebrew for wind is the exact same word for spirit. As in, Holy Spirit. And you see, what Zechariah sees in this vision here is that God is empowering this removal of wickedness. That God is on the move. That God is able to make this happen. And there's something else that's kind of an interesting play on words. I don't know if you are one of the sort of people that likes puns a lot. But there's a pun here in Hebrew. And if you want to see it, you could... Study Hebrew for eight or nine months. Come back to Zechariah and you could get the pun. And it's interesting because the word for stork is almost exactly the word for the faithful one. They sound almost exactly the same. It's a play on words. And you see what's happening here is there's a reason why the women have wings of a stork. It's because the faithful one is doing this removal. And who is the faithful one? 
Well, it's not you and it's not me. Because we've already seen at the beginning of this chapter that we deserve the curse for breaking the covenant. The faithful one is God Himself. You see, those who persist in sin are unfaithful. But God will not allow His people to remain in sin. And so He is faithful and He removes it from them. How does He do this? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake... He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. John tells us in his first letter, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. Paul writes again in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. You see, God does not just restrain your sin. He removes it in Jesus. It is gone forever. As you struggle with sin this week, take this picture of the basket and the women with the wings going off into the distance, getting further and further and further away because that is God's work in your life. You see, God is not just interested in restraining sin. He removes it from His people. And in removing it, He actually gives a warning to the world. Because Zechariah looks at the angel and he says, the obvious question that you or I might have, where are they going? And the angel answers, to Shinar. Now Shinar has a rich biblical history. Shinar is perhaps first and foremost a nickname for Babylon. It is symbolic of an empire, a world that is in rebellion against God. Babylon is the symbol of the world that opposes God. That is why at the end of the book of Revelation, God says, Babylon the Great is fallen. It is symbolic of a world system that hates God and that loves sin. But there's even a little bit more to this. Shinar is also another name for Babel, as in the Tower of Babel. And you remember what happened at the Tower of Babel, how all humanity came together to go against God and His will, and they said, we will build a tower that will reach up to God, and we will become like God. You remember how that ended? Their languages were confused and they were defeated by Almighty God. But we see here, sin is removed from God's people and it is taken to a world that is opposed to God and that is left for destruction. The angel says, there is a house being prepared for the basket and wickedness. And this house is the same word that is used throughout Zechariah and other places to refer to a temple. It's the same word. And so in a sense, there is a temple for sin being prepared in the world. Its base is being set as the world worships itself and selfishness and sin. You see, far from being concerned about sin, the world celebrates it. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 1. This is what we see around us all the time, isn't it? 
It's what you see on the covers of those magazines at the grocery checkout store. It's what comes across your news feed as you are looking at things on the internet. It's what you see that comes on the television and on the movies and in the previews. You see, sin is celebrated as what is right, good, and normal. And God is warning the world that sin doesn't have the end that we expect. You see, sin is never enough. We think we can start with just a little bit of sin. And it's not enough. It's like a gateway drug. It doesn't give us the satisfaction that we want. And so we have to take it to the next level. And then that soon becomes dulled us. And we have to take it to yet the next level. You see, what happens with sin is a slow descent into judgment and oblivion. Sin will never satisfy, but its end will surely come. Slowly, but surely. If you think about it, when was the last time that you sinned and an anvil fell out of the sky and hit you in the head? Or something blew up in your face? Never. And you see, when that doesn't happen, there's a part of us that says, well, I guess this isn't so bad. Because nothing bad is happening. But you see, the end of sin in this sense is like the frog in the boiling pot. It's like the man wandering out in the ice storm. Not knowing that slowly and steadily, more and more, he is being destroyed. And Babylon will have her end. She will be judged. This is what the Lord is warning. And what he says at the same time is, is that that judgment will not come upon those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, our hope in a sinful world, our hope as we struggle with our own sins, is the call of Jesus. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You cannot hide your sins from God today. Sin will be judged. But God has solved the problem of sin. He has solved it in Jesus Christ. Sin is restrained. Sin is removed and it is revealed for us all to see. To see that we have our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you come to Him? Will you come to Him today? Will you find faith and hope and trust in Jesus today? And give up sin and find true satisfaction and hope. This is God's word for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would indeed show us our sin. Show us our sin in all of its ugliness so that we might run to the Savior. That we might know that we cannot keep it all together. We cannot solve these problems, but that we need you, O Lord. We ask, O Lord, That you would work in our lives. 
through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.